0: This is Bloomberg Business Week from
1: Bloomberg Radio.
2: I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. My co-host Jason Kelly is off. In this episode, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and a lot more. This week, a focus on tech, specifically hiding from Silicon Valley. What life is like without Gmail and how we became a nation of digital trolls. First up, it was a rough week for global stocks. A lot had to do with the escalation of U.S.-China trade tensions. Mike Regan covers the markets for Bloomberg. And Mike, let's start there. You write that this week was really about the mosh pit that became the markets, and it's all because of three individuals. Talk to us about that.
3: All right. To me, that's kind of a very unique thing that's going on right now. I mean, I've covered markets for a while. You've covered markets yeah. for a while, Carol. I don't ever remember a time when... The three individuals, and specifically President Trump, uh, Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, and Xi Jinping, the president of China. Now, Three pretty powerful people. Three powerful people. Uh, granted, and when we talk about the president of China, clearly he's you know not making autonomous decisions. He, he has his advisors and power brokers within the Communist Party. But you know, especially outside observers, he's the guy at the top of the party, so he gets the credit and blame for everything that's going on. But for th- three individuals uh, to really have this much influence uh, over the markets on a day-to-day basis, I think is a very unusual thing. And we have see sort of you know, obviously conflicting interests, not just between uh, President Trump and the president of China, but also Jerome Powell has his own uh, mandate to do what's best for the U.S. economy. And uh, obviously, President Trump's made it clear Mm -hmm. that he doesn't agree with what he's doing and wants more aggressive rate cuts. So it's this very strange dynamic, I think, that is is very unique uh, time in markets.
2: What's fascinating, too, Mike, it's all been, I feel like, the last week and a half or so. And it kind of started with the Fed meeting, right, and some comments that Jay Powell made
3: Right, right. So, he cut uh, interest rates the first – As expected. Uh, right, as expected. Um, but he you know, mentioned that he called it a mid-cycle adjustment, which uh, kind of shocked people. They were hoping he would sort of do a Mario Draghi, his counterpart in Europe, and say, we'll do whatever it takes right. to, to keep the expansion going. But he – tempered that. He sort of is keeping those cards close to the vest, saying it's a mid-cycle adjustment, which the market signaled, well, maybe it's only one interest rate cut, maybe two, not this full-on aggressive easing that the market and clearly that President Trump was uh, hoping for.
2: Right, because there was so much debate going into that Fed meeting about, could we possibly see an aggressive Fed? And could we see 50, 50 basis points? Some of that was being talked about in the markets, or could it be a quarter point? Right,
3: right. And you know there was some conflicting messaging coming out of uh, various speakers from the Federal Reserve mm-hmm. le- leading up to that. Yeah. There was this notion that a big sort of shocking off 50 basis point cut early in a, the easing cycle like this might be enough to really sort of kickstart uh, the economy. Uh, clearly, um, and that was always priced in as kind of uh, long odds. Right. They, they The market didn't really expect that, but enough. People expected that, and if not that uh, expected a signal from Jerome Powell that this would be a very uh, it, whatever it takes type of uh, uh, reaction to what 's going on in markets, and they didn 't get that, and so that 's really what set the ball rolling well oh, then what,
2: and then one day after you have President really the
3: next day, President Trump comes out and threatens uh, tariffs on the remainder of China, uh, imports from China, and that really, uh, you know, was like throwing gasoline on the fire of this market. Um, now, granted, it's still a market that's up in double digits percent this year. But well,
2: we pulled back substantially we've from those pulled highs. Back, and if you look,
3: if, if you go back, you know, if you stretch the chart out further, we're below where we were at the beginning of 2018. And that's when, when the market, everyone was very excited about the prospects of tax cuts and, you know, so over the last uh, 18, 19 months, we've basically gone gone nowhere. nowhere. Yeah. Boy,
2: I feel like we keep talking about that story the last couple of years. <laughs> yeah. There's one line in your story, and let's not forget. So you had Jay Powell, you had President Trump, and then, of course, at the beginning of this week, you had President Xi Jinping, uh, you know, jumping in in terms of the yuan right. and the, the stress that that put on the markets. But I, I love this line in your story. You said, each collision in the mosh pit involving these three <laughs> individuals exposes the fragility of the global economy and the markets, and right? Each time we kind of chip away, we realize kind of how vulnerable we might be.
3: Right. You're right. And this is all coming to a head at a time when markets are really craving sort of uh, peace in the trade Right, Some Um, certainty. Some certainty. I mean, if you look at uh, one thing that everyone looks at very closely are the the purchasing managers Mm -hmm. indexes for the manufacturing sector of the economy and the services sector. Uh, Manufacturing is very weak and uh, services is kind of following in its wake. They're both getting close to that level that signals contraction rather than a continued expansion of the economy. And remember, you know, uh, the trade war uh, ostensibly was to bolster the domestic manufacturing uh, industry, right? And these gauges of of that of those industries are nearing sort of recession levels. Not there yet, but they're starting to point to basically uh, grind to a halt in growth and and and. You know if they keep going at this trajectory then we 're going to be seeing you know, decline shrinkage in in those sectors of the economy, which is very alarming and in europe uh, they 're already there right. uh, uh, Germany, especially the manufacturing sector mm-hmm. super important to the German uh, economy, much more important than ours uh, than the, than to the u s economy. Uh, shrinking. Uh, even since that, uh, the story went off to be printed, there's been even more alarming d- data about industrial production in Germany. So, uh, you know, it's a trade war between the US and China, but uh, Germany is kind of getting caught in the <laughs> right. crossfire. There. Right.
2: And you see more global central banks easing uh, yeah. as well this past week. You know, what's kind of interesting is I think about and before we got going, I said, I don't know what it is about August in the last couple of years, because I know it's when I take vacation and I'm often on vacation kind of reading in quickly because the markets keep selling off. This is supposed to be the quiet time, the dog days of summer. What's going on?
3: Well, it is. And that's part of it, I think, is there's, you know, people obviously take vacations. They, you know, they sort of get defensive maybe a little bit in their investment strategies. And if you look at, just look at the data over the last decade, uh, volatility, like the VIX, the measure of of volatility Mm -hmm. in the stock market, it, you know, noticeably on average, creeps higher in August. Volume goes lower. Uh, the S and P 500 moves on has moved on average more than three percent in the month of August, either up or down, right? Over the last decade, that's a big move for a single month.
2: That's Mike Regan. So if you think about the rise of the smartphone, and yes, of course, we think about Apple, Google also comes to mind, specifically Android, the mobile operating system that the company created. Well, now a decade or so in existence, Android has had an enormous impact on our world. Bloomberg Opinion Technology columnist Shira Obaday writes about it this week in the technology section. She joins us from San Francisco, and I love this story about Android. I mean, Shira, we cannot underestimate the impact that it has had on the smartphone industry.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. So recently, according to United Nations figures, 50%, just more than 50% of the world's population is now using the internet. And smartphones are a big reason for that, right? If you look at countries like India and China and many other parts of the world, the smartphone is the internet. It's the primary access gateway for many people. And I basically wanted to look at a little version of alternate history. So we all know the story about the iPhone and Steve Jobs kind of prowling on a darkened stage into... 2007 to introduce this first modern smartphone that changed everything. But I sort of wondered, what happened if Android never existed? Android is now 85% of all new smartphones sold in the world. And again, in countries like China and India, it is the vast majority of the smartphone market. And I really believe that if Android had never existed, the smartphone and the internet in general would not have been this broadly, globally ubiquitous place. Well,
2: and this is what I love. You break it down. Because the first, first, I just want to remind everybody, as you remind in your story, Shira, I mean, it was just 10 years ago, right? Roughly that Android kind of came on our universe. But there were a couple things, I think three that you really point out that really helped make it embraced by the smartphone industry, talk about it. Specifically, you talk about the role of Google, of course, of bringing it out and its support.
4: Yeah, and obviously Google is closely associated with Android. They bought the startup called Android back in, in 2005, and that was the foundation of the Android that we know. But people forget that, you're right, it's only been a decade, and a decade ago after the iPhone came out, basically everybody that wasn't Apple was scared, and Google gave them a solution, a way to enter the smartphone market um, with some googly strings attached, right? <laughs> and that was a big help to everybody that didn't have an answer to the iPhone. So that meant mobile phone companies, that meant handset makers like uh, like Samsung and Motorola and HTC, um, and that meant all of the app makers as well who no longer had to make a zillion different versions of their apps or ringtones or other kinds of software for, if, if you remember, the proliferation of mostly crummy, just mm-hmm. terrible cell phone operating systems kind of pre-iPhone.
2: Well, talk a little bit more about Samsung, right? I mean, they were crucial in terms of when they came out with their Galaxy, I mean, how they really
4: just kind of took it to a whole other level. They really did. And, and again, it's it's easy to, to forget this in the fog of history, but Samsung was one of these companies that got caught a little bit flat-footed by the introduction of the iPhone and, and the surge in popularity of smartphones in general. And they laid back a little bit. And then once it was clear that Android was starting to get some traction, they basically put their foot on the gas. And again, it's hard to imagine the modern smartphone without Samsung, which is now the biggest seller of smartphones in the world. And what they did did basically was come out with every conceivable variety of Android (laughs) smartphone, with every conceivable feature, every conceivable price point. They sold into just about every country in the world. And on top of that, they introduced some of these innovations that are now a fixture of modern smartphones, notably the larger screens um, that iPhone was playing catch up to. But it was those larger screens that really made the smartphone, this kind of must-have device, it suddenly became more appealing to have a smartphone as your primary computing device, to read on it, to, Mm -hmm. you know, look at Google Maps, to do all of these things that we now associate with smartphones. Throw
2: in one more factor, as you point out in your story, Shira, about China and the rise, really the economic rise of China and their increased demand wanting all kinds of smartphones.
4: Yeah, and and China is a huge part of the story here, both as consumers of smartphones and related technologies, and now as sort of innovators in smartphone technologies. So what happened in the last decade plus was the Chinese government, as part of the economic development program, decided to spread fast wireless internet all over the country, into every, not just cities, but into every rural part of the, the country. And smartphones came along with that, and then you had these local smartphone makers Uh, that we know today companies like uh, Huawei and Xiaomi and so on who started basically took Android or, or a version of Android, customized it for their own needs, attached their own app stores and apps to it, and spread smartphones into China, where, again, before um, China started this this internet revolution, a, s- a small fraction of the country, less than 10% of the country, used the internet, and now it is you know significantly more than 50% in China who are using the internet. And almost all of those people are on smartphones made by by these local companies, again, like Xiaomi and Huawei. And we're also seeing now that those same Chinese smartphone vendors are spreading elsewhere in the world. So again, in India, in some countries in Europe, in Latin America, we are starting to see these chinese uh, smartphone vendors mm-hmm. become really popular.
2: All right, so let's talk about the future and I do wonder about the next 10 years for Android. You know, will it be another era for Android or will it be much more about proprietary systems, especially when you think about self-driving cars and 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 the like and the internet of many things? I mean, who's going to who's going to ultimately be the leader?
4: Yeah, I really think it's ironic that Android It basically dominated smartphones and there is no modern smartphone era as we know it without Android but at the same time I think it's a technology whose time has come and gone that if you look now at the future that people are talking about in technology it is more of these proprietary technologies that are sort of controlled end to end by a single company the way let's not forget that the iPhone exists right so in self driving cars in uh, augmented reality in these home speakers that serve as digital assistants, what you have basically is not this sprawling ecosystem of companies uh, as we had with Android smartphones, but you have generally one company in control of everything. And I think that is probably the future of technology. It's a future that maybe Steve Jobs would have cheerleaded because that's the philosophy that he embraced when when he was alive in smartphones and in in personal computers. Uh, But I think that means that this kind of sprawling, democratizing hot mess kind of Android-like technology, it probably is not a fixture of the future.
2: And that's Bloomberg Opinion tech columnist Shira Oveday. So there's several feature stories in the magazine this week looking at what the internet has become, how it got there, how to push back. The next story is about how the information superhighway became transformative, lucrative, and a hostile toxic mess. Reporter Felix Gillette joining us right now. Those are strong words. Yeah. Um, Tell us about big tech's safe harbor. I yeah. love that. You write that in the story, and I think that just explains so much.
5: Yeah, it's this kind of fascinating law, which people call Section 230 of the Communications Decency sounds Act. Sounds boring. Yes, it sounds very <laughs> boring. It's all about liability and the Internet. Uh, and yet it's this statute that goes back all the way to the early days of the Internet. It was passed in 1995, and it's proven incredibly powerful, uh, important to how the web evolved. Why? Um, you know, the most important section is this 26-word section essentially says that websites and internet service providers can't be held liable for the speech of their users with some exceptions. But essentially, you know, supporters of this law say you wouldn't have social media without this. You wouldn't have this sharing economy. There'd be no peer-to-peer services because it would be too risky for anybody to host any sort of web service that has, that relies on users to contribute content. Right, who would so, want the liability or right, the responsibility for what from everybody from else YouTube says? Everything from YouTube to Wikipedia yeah. to Twitter to Facebook. It's all predicated on this legal framework, which dates back to, you know, was Conceived in 1995, different and different environment, totally different environment, yeah. and um, so on the one hand, it, it at the time it were, you know it had broad um, support from both parties in Congress when it initially passed, and yet now as part of this broader backlash to big tech that we're seeing, it is suddenly under siege.
2: Well, what's interesting, too, and you said it mm-hmm. had bipartisan support yeah. back in 1995, and yeah. I feel like now, all of a sudden, big tech is under siege from both sides of yeah. the aisle.
5: Yeah, And so, you have conservatives and liberals both now questioning whether or not this law makes sense in 2019, but for very different reasons. Can
2: I just go, because there's mm-hmm. one line, and I, like, as we said, 1995 was was very different. You write, the leading internet companies were underdogs. Now they're overly of the U.S. economy. Yeah. I mean, a lot has changed. Since yeah, then.
5: I think it's that inversion of power that's really unsettling a lot of people. Um, yeah, because initially when they carved out this immunity for these companies, they were tiny, yeah. and the idea was, oh, they're going to get crushed by unfair litigation. Facebook, Google, you got to protect them. Yeah, and uh, and now. You know, when you typically see Section 230 invoked in lawsuits, it's always you know a big company—Facebook, Twitter, Google—kind of using the safe harbor to kind of brush aside the complaints of typically you know small companies. Um, and so it's that dynamic that that uh, has made it somewhat controversial. And conservatives say, well, you know. Um, these platforms are being unfair to conservatives. They're stifling conservative viewpoints. And this law was predicated initially on a, a certain neutrality. Uh, we wouldn't treat them as publishers, uh, but they'd have to stay neutral. And, you know, Democrats have said, well, that's actually not the case. That's <laughs> that's not uh, the correct interpretation of how this law was passed. But at the same time, they have their own criticisms of the law, which is essentially that, you know, when this law was uh, passed, it was it – was, Uh, done so with the idea that these companies would do a better job of regulating their communities than the federal government would. Right. And what a lot of Democrats are now saying is like, well, you're not doing enough. You have the shield, but behind that shield, you're supposed to be cleaning up your communities. You're supposed to be proactively, you know, self-regulating and... You know, you've been proven incapable of doing that, and you see all of this harassment, abuse online. Um, and if you're not capable of cleaning that up yourselves, then the federal government needs to do, step in.
2: So let's unpack some of that. Let's mm-hmm. talk. Like, the big tech companies are arguing, like, if you do away with this, with Section 230, yeah. I mean, everything comes crumbling down. Are yeah. they right?
5: I mean, that's totally unknown because really the internet it, throughout the entire existence uh, has essentially built up with this law in place so it's a little bit unclear what it would look like there have been attempts over the years to carve out more exceptions right to reform and it think, a little bit right yeah, and I think you're going to see more of that um, you know there was a, a last year uh, federal government succeeded in carving out uh, an exception for sex trafficking cases um, but what you're talking about now is you have people saying uh, you know get rid of the whole thing and I think that would be very very disruptive to the whole system what makes might make more sense as having some sort of reform um, in terms of how you distribute liability um, for these websites. Um, a lot of people actually who have critiqued this, and if you really get in deep into the weeds on this, <laughs> a lot of people point back not to the law itself, but you know, looking at how it was interpreted by courts over the years. Uh, there was a very pivotal decision in 1997 um, by the Fourth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals that essentially said that that gave it. Really really, really broad interpretation of this liability protection. And what some people say is, okay, go back to that decision. And that's the, the point at which this became too powerful for these companies. That wasn't the intention. Mm-hmm. The intention was to give a much more narrow form of uh, liability and that's reporter Felix Gillette.
2: So the issue this week has several stories on the tech lash or backlash that's underway as politicians and consumers push back more and more against the loss of privacy online. The cover story this week, written by reporter Jill Stein, who joins us now from Los Angeles. Jill, uh, a riveting story. The cover alone, I talked with Joel Weber about this. It's a little creepy. Uh, tell everyone what you set out to do for this story. Your mission.
6: The idea was, uh, obviously, you can just opt out more or less not as much as you used to of leaving kind of a digital imprint but I am too lazy to do that and give up all my tech so instead Mm -hmm. I tried to purchase tech because I'm a consumerist to foil the uh, the tech that's stealing my privacy from me and I tried to do it only by going to companies that weren't uh, out of Silicon Valley so it's you know places in Boston and and uh, scandinavia and salt lake city we were making devices that i could use that weren't mining my data
2: right because you've already and let me just set the scene here because i love this how Please. you write about it i mean you are somebody yes or no just answer these questions you have google yeah. right
6: yeah yeah of course
2: facebook amazon sentient being yeah <laughs> lyft uber well sure all right you've got a nest thermostat
6: I have two Nest thermostats, yeah.
2: You've got two. You've got Fitbit, you've got Roku, and you've shared your genetic makeup with 23andMe and more, correct?
6: The yeah, other three companies that gave my genetics. I'm wearing an Aura Ring to track my sleep and a Fitbit to track my steps, and I've got a Ring doorbell, and yeah, right. I'm, I'm pretty wired up.
2: All right, so there's a lot of data out there. So tell us about, first of all, you talk about in your story Mycroft. What is that?
6: Yeah, so I have an Amazon Alexa, which I love. And I actually have a Google Home too, because I got it free somehow. And so uh, they are, you know, collecting a lot of data about me. So I was looking for a way to still have that experience with a, you know, an AI system that wasn't collecting data. And there's this really cool company called Mycroft that sells this adorable uh, little thing that has little eyes on it that looks kind of like Wall-E. And it, it's in early stages, so it's not working quite as well as it, it could. But it's a guy out of Kansas City who's very interested in privacy. And uh, and it's kind of an Amazon Alexa for those who don't want Amazon or anyone to have your data.
2: All right. So, okay, so you played with that a little bit, but
6: you also... Which is interesting because you saw the stories this week about how in order to improve their efficiency, Siri and uh, Amazon are sending some of, of your... Voice, you know, what mm-hmm. they recorded you saying to people. So people are hearing things that maybe you accidentally recorded.
2: There are so many interesting conversations, especially I think after people read your story. Um, you know, you talk- Well, that's the thing. People,
6: I never worried about privacy. I wrote a cover for Time Magazine about my data being mined. And my conclusion was you shouldn't worry too much because it's anonymized. And mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the, as the progress technology has progressed, people really don't think about don't worry about their privacy. They say things like, oh, that's just for catching criminals. I'm not a criminal. And they don't really think about, oh, all the, the different times in your life when you're a vulnerable person and you want your privacy protected. And, and it takes a little bit of thinking. Like, Although there are huge groups like women abused by their husbands or who are being stalked, who's, you know, who are really in danger of, mm-hmm the fact that you can go on Google, if you have your, your password, and look up everywhere you've ever been, that you, you know, it, right. you can do it right now. Go on Google, it shows you your location data happily. That's everywhere you go to regularly, everywhere you've been. Uh, facial recognition is is much, much better than I thought it could be. For like 50 bucks, you can buy Amazon's recognition system right. and point it out your window and, and find out You run it against databases and see who's going around your house.
2: Right. And we've definitely done stories in the magazine, particularly in in a country like China, where they're using it to be able to get onto mass transportation and so on and so forth. I want to get back to your story, though, because you say step one to start hiding from Silicon Valley. Stop typing your cell phone number and email into every (laughs) uh, conceivable Internet phone. Like, stop doing it.
6: Yeah, and there's, it's, your cell phone is worth more on the black market than your social security number. It's, it's more data rich. It's an easier way to get into all of your systems. Uh, so yeah, you, it's really easy if you go to a company like MySudo or Privacy.com, get yourself, or um, Burner, the app, get yourself some, a couple of uh, fake phone numbers, couple of fake email addresses and just use those just, just for the ease of your life in case you do get hacked. You don't have to like, your main email right. address can still be your main email address. You don't have to change everything. Same with credit card numbers. There are these companies, the ones I just mentioned, that will give you one time or 10 time credit card uses so that when your credit card gets hacked, you don't have to like go and change every subscription you have. I think we're just being, we see these opportunities like oh you know they'll give us a dollar off or they'll start giving us bonuses if we give them our cell phone number and our email address. But it's not just for being, like, a good person. They're doing it because it has value, and they're getting a good deal out of it.
2: Well, and this is what I think is interesting in your story. You do kind of run down all the things that you did to basically create privacy, you know, in the digital world. And you talked about MySudo. You mentioned, you know, it creates multiple email addresses and phone numbers. It's about a buck a month. Uh, You talked about the uh, Delete Me service. That's a way of kind of opting out of databases. I mean, we have to remember, right? That we have so many different companies that are collecting all this different information out there on each and every one of us. And then you have really essentially aggregators, right, that put it together and kind of figure out who you are.
6: Yeah. And none of that's new. I mean, mm. as a person who works at magazines, that's what a big part of the magazine industry is yeah. selling your data list to people. It's a big part of being a politician, too, is like selling and buying lists of people. Now, it's just so much more detailed and so much more prevalent now that the information is online and includes your face. Like I just got back from a trip uh, overseas, and when I checked in to my Air France flight, they told us we didn't need to show them our uh, passport or our, um, or our tickets. They, there was just a facial recognition system as we, wa- as we boarded the plane that mm-hmm. let us in. I was like, oh my god, Air France just picked up my photo, I assume, from my passport with all of my data attached to it. Right. And now they, now they can find me anywhere, which is a lot of power I had given them without even knowing. So
2: tell me about those. So this whole mission of you, you know, hiding from Silicon Valley, and then you wanted to go out and purchase these privacy gadgets. I yeah. mean, was the, it doesn't sound like the process was easy to do this.
6: No. Obviously, the easiest thing would have been for me to get some cash up uh, <laughs> but put on a mask so that no facial recognition could find me. Or at least these cool IR glasses, which prevent, they just look like sunglasses almost, and they prevent, uh, facial recognition really needs your open eyes. Like right. you can't look at, Apple won't open your phone unless your eyes are open. So I, I could have put on those glasses. Reflecticals, right? I think they're,
2: is it called Reflecticals, I think they're called?
6: Yeah, right. they're kind of awesome, yeah. Uh, they're made by this guy in Chicago who is a real, uh, he's an artist who makes really cool glasses, but he really feels strongly about privacy. And he uh, he carries a flip phone, let's put it that way.
2: Well, and, uh, the, and not all the time. And you mentioned also, I think, is it an anti-surveillance coat? If you want to go to the extreme, it's, I think, something like $1,600. But you could actually wear something, right, that kind of masks who you are?
6: there um, The coat, you mean? Yeah, so they're basically cool artists are making... You know a Faraday bag, which is mm-hmm. uh, right. it basically has a coating of metal so that uh, radio waves can't penetrate it. So I bought one of those and I put my phone in it. You can really just shut your phone off; it would have the same effect. But it was much uh, much more fun to put it in this Faraday bag. And they make a Faraday suit because there are RFID chips in your. Uh, Credit cards and your wallet. So to block all that stuff, you can put all your stuff in a bag.
2: All right. So there's uh, all, there's all these things, this list of things that you can go to kind mm-hmm. of hide from Silicon Valley, and then to ultimately make this purchase that you were trying to do to yeah. buy. In the end, you you couldn't quite do it, right?
6: <sighs> so I was buying something from Amazon, which was just like a privacy screen, a physical screen for my computer, so that you could only see it straight on. So if you're sitting next to someone on the airplane, they can't see it from the side. So I wanted to buy from Amazon. I got my my you know, credit card without my the number without my name on it. I created another account with an email from my pseudo that wasn't one I used. And I, was, I made this purchase from Amazon. Amazon is this awesome thing uh, for people, I guess, if you have a PO box, you're in college, and you want stuff delivered safely, there are these Amazon boxes all over that have names. Uh, and mine was at a 7-Eleven, it was named Justine. And this thing was delivered to this box, so they didn't have my home address and i went to go i wore my uh at first i put on that crazy mask yeah and then i realized that if my objective was to be private uh there's nothing that was going to get me stared at more than wearing that mask in public so that was that kind of uh ruined my idea of doing this privately so instead i put on those cool reflecticles. yes and i went to the 7-eleven and this great looking amazon locker orange amazon colored locker is right there in the front before the slurpee machine and uh and i went to unlock it and what you just do is you you put this little uh, barcode underneath the scanner and it opens your locker in this super cool way but i didn't print out this the, the scanning thing and i didn't so i had to turn on my phone and, and get the email <laughs> with the scanner and Alas. by that point google knew where i was and everyone knew everything and i'd blown it it's just And what I learned in the end was that, like, much like, you know, environmental issues, climate change, privacy is something you can't really solve for yourself. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, unless you really become a hermit. It's something we as a society have to, you know, negotiate and change.
2: That's Joel Stein we turn to Washington, where it was not the dog days of summer. Tracking the news flow and what it meant for President Trump, Businessweek national correspondent Josh Green. And Josh, no doubt about it, it was a very, very busy week. And as you report, not a great one for the president.
0: Between the gun massacres in El Paso and Dayton, Uh, between uh, the ratcheting up of the trade war and China devaluing its currency. Uh, It it has been a big week in Washington and all of these events collectively I think have weighed on the president's re-election chances I wrote about in Business Week.
2: Well let's talk about this because this certainly plays into his re-election come 2020. It's really just around the corner and I remember there was a story on the Bloomberg this week that talked about those Republican suburban voters. Tell us about that and how that might impact the president come re-election.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, if you look at the events collectively of this past week, I think it hits uh, three key demographic voting groups, all of which are critical to Trump's re-election. The big one, of course... Uh, are suburbanites who have been outraged by this gun violence, by Congress's uh, lack of willingness, Trump's lack of willingness to pursue real meaningful gun control measures. If you go back to last fall and look at where Democrats won in a rout in House races across the country, it tended to be suburban areas, formerly Republican suburban areas like Orange County and uh, uh, districts outside Dallas, the suburbs of New Jersey. uh, These are places where Trump needs to win in order to get a second term in 2020. And collectively, if you look at the way poll numbers have been moving, gun control is an increasingly important, increasingly salient voter issue. And so as these massacres dominate the front page and as Washington does really nothing to address it, you can almost see the shift happening toward Democrats away from Republicans.
2: And that's a bit of a change, right, in terms of gun control issues. I feel like it hasn't, it's certainly been an issue uh, in other political (laughs) races in the past here, but it feels like there's certainly a lot more momentum here.
0: It's right. What's different now is that in the past, gun control was a very important issue uh, for people who were against it. The NRA mm-hmm. rose to power by famously being able to turn out single-issue gun voters who tended to be uh, more loyal and more enthusiastic voters uh, than people who support gun control. However, that has changed markedly over the past few years, and especially since the Parkland shooting. Gun control is now a motivating issue for Democrats, which is why I think you saw all of the Democratic uh, presidential candidates. One of the reasons, uh, be so critical of Trump and of the Senate for not passing gun control legislation.
2: All right, let's talk about another uh, group that has certainly been so key to President Trump uh, certainly the last time around, and that is the Mm -hmm. FARM group. Talk to us about that and the FARM states.
0: Well, of course, uh, one of the things that China did last week in retaliation for Trump's uh, saying he's going to impose additional sheriffs on China was to announce that they were cutting off agricultural purchases. Mm -hmm. There is probably no group that has suffered more under Trump's presidency than farmers because they have borne the brunt of China's retaliatory tariffs. So I've done a lot of reporting about this in Bloomberg over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, Agricultural areas in the Midwest have been especially impacted. What's interesting, however, is that this hasn't really hurt uh, Republicans at the ballot box, yet yeah, I did a big story looking at which congressional districts uh, rely the most on soybeans, which of course have been a target of tariffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, all 30 of the top districts voted for Trump. 25 of them had Republican members of the House. I went back and looked after the midterm elections expecting that there was a lot of turnover, and there's a grand turnover of one seat toward okay. the Democrats. So while farmers look as though they're going to have to bear... Uh, yet more economic pain, these areas tend to be so deep red that it may not cost Trump quite as badly in electoral terms as some of the other groups that he's losing.
2: All right, so maybe farmers might not cost as much to the president, but what about the upper Midwest? That too was a key uh, electoral group, if you will.
0: So, so, this to me is the critical area to look at for who is going to win the 2020 election. Upper Midwest states like Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, and Pennsylvania, a little further to the east, are probably going to determine who the next president is. The, the, the problem that Trump has is, you know, he sparked this trade war in large part in an effort to bring about. What I've called a rust belt renaissance to revive the manufacturing economies in these states. Uh, The problem is that that hasn't really happened. And now, with China devaluing its currency, that of course is going to weaken Chinese demand for American goods. It, It risks intensifying the manufacturing recession we've seen in the upper Midwest, which is a sharp turnaround from the growth in manufacturing output we saw in 2017, 2018. Things were moving in the right direction for Trump. Now they're moving in the wrong direction that is not what you want if you're president trump going into your reelection
2: and i do wonder too josh i mean there's been a, a big conversation i feel like this week that the president will not get a trade deal that the united states and china will not get a trade deal before that 2020 election how important though is it that he does get a deal done
0: well, it, it, as you say, you're right. It looks increasingly unlikely that that's going to happen because of these ratcheting up tensions. Uh, and of course, Goldman Sachs came out with a note on August 5th saying, we now don't expect the U.S. and China to reach a trade deal. I think that's potentially problematic for Trump because, of course, one of his great claims on the campaign trail in 2016 was that he would renegotiate trade deals with China on more favorable terms to the US uh, and enliven and revivify a lot of these declining Rust Belt areas. If he's not able to do that, it's going to make Trump much more vulnerable, especially to the kind of populist economic message you hear from candidates like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, or Joe Biden, who, uh, back when he was Obama's vice president, helped to engineer the auto bailout that really saved those companies in the wake of the financial crisis.
2: And that's national correspondent Josh Green from Washington. So the Federal Reserve cuts rates, companies borrow more money as a result, put that money to work investing in plants, equipment, and so on, you know, capital expenditures. Well, that's not actually happening. Here with more in the economic section this week, Liz McCormick, she follows the rates market for us here in the United States uh, at Bloomberg News. So talk to us about, right, how things are supposed to work and what's the expectation when the Fed lowers rates and and the impact it has on companies and their spending.
7: Right. So if you took out your economics textbook and your (laughs) finance, which we all used to look at, um, it would be lower rates, help companies borrow, just like it helps you and I borrow because it's cheaper, and that they should invest more. And we should see that come through in uh, the numbers and investment and economic growth. And though we've had a recovery, it hasn't been great. And we and investment has been going down. So it's kind of like a little mind-bending what's happening. And uh, we looked into it, Ben Holland and I, and there's a lot of theory that says, well, there were some changes and companies are just plowing this money back into their shares, you know, by buybacks and dividends to kind of help the shareholders right. you know, feel better. Right? Because we know this. Like, I feel like coming off
2: of the crisis and because money was so cheap, we constantly talked about how much borrowing and we actually kind of applied Plauded companies saying, Oh, how great, you're getting rid of your expensive debt, you're you know borrowing at lower rates, this is good for your balance sheets, but ultimately they weren't putting them that money back to work right, it's, on plants and facilities exactly. and so on and so forth. So
7: borrowing is good when you're using it for the right reasons. you right. know. So no one is begrudging companies for borrowing, but like Capital Group had a big mid-year report and they said, watch out for companies that are spending more than they earn. So they're spending more by borrowing, but then they were kind of dug in the weeds of what are they doing with that borrowing? And they said, we're kind of leery of companies that are borrowing and just plowing it back to shareholders and not expanding capacity and doing things. Because it's interesting, they said in a downturn, the companies that have expanded, added people, they can easily cut back a little. Right. But if you just use that debt to kind of funnel more, you know, stock price growth, you're a little bit more in a bind. So they were saying that's a problem. Well, and in the past, right, we've always seen this correlation between how much is borrowed and versus how much is spent on CapEx. There's been a pretty close correlation, right? Right, right. So but that's so, broken down. Some of the economists that look at this have done studies and said since the 80s when the SEC changed some rules that made buybacks uh, possible for companies because it wasn't going to be like you're manipulating your stock price. Right. They've been plowing it yeah. into shareholder wealth. So it's kind of like a corporate governance thing. They've had a mindset change like, well, companies like to invest in stocks that go up, right? So right. we plow it back into earnings and even dividends. It will help. So that kind of broke that correlation because you saw this lower rates borrowing and, and you're seeing investment not go higher. And and that's what is the issue. And are we on, like a, on, on track for another record year of buybacks? Yeah, I mean, Goldman Sachs says about a trillion this year, which is, you know, higher than last year's Which was a record, right? Exactly, exactly. And th- this is the year when the tax cuts, are, it's not the first year, right? So right. we already have that in place. When you look at this though, right, and we do try to
2: figure out, okay, what's different this time around? Because we haven't seen kind of the economic activity we would have expected with such a long period of low rates and that whole idea if you're not kind of investing for the future and, and that's kind of what you guys are looking into.
7: Right, so uh, again, we've had a recovery but you know, Chair Powell has even talked about many things they're confused about. Why inflation right. is not as high as it should be. Why growth kind of can't really get off the ground. And some of these things like investment, you know, behaving differently is part of the reasons. I mean, there's many facets to it, but this is somewhat of an issue. Talk to us a little bit about, I thought it was interesting. I think you had a quote or some, uh, an interview with Dan Iverson over at
2: PIMCO. Yes, yeah. Because he certainly, he's yeah. the chief investment officer, right, over at PIMCO. He's supportive of buybacks.
7: Right. I, I kind of said to Dan, you know, presented this theory. And he said, well, yeah, okay, officially it's not investment in the sense that you'd think, but it does help because everyone likes the wealth effect. Shareholder wealth goes up. And even everyone in your 401k, you feel better, which, you know, you can make sense. Maybe I'll go buy that big screen TV because I look like I could retire in a few years, you know, with this money. So, you you know, I think that's a fair point. And Chair Powell has said the same thing in the recent press conference that they had after the FOMC, that, yeah, we feel it's worth... Working through different mechanical ways like, you know, sentiment, confidence, things like that. So I think that's true, but maybe those aren't as direct. Right. So whereas you're not getting this money plowed into them making, you know, expanding businesses and adding new people and, and helping to invent new products. So it's a little slower and more muted. I think that's the problem. Right. You do wonder about like the next sub cycle for those that maybe have invested in
2: capital expenditures, right. you know, are they better positioned to do better than some of their counterparts who haven't made those investments?
7: Exactly. I mean, it's not something that seems obvious to everyone, but if you look at the people who kind of look in the weeds of this all the time, that makes sense. You know, you say, yeah, I mean, if not that you want anyone to get laid off, but if we've expanded and done a few new things and we've doubled our staff, maybe if there's a downturn, we can just cut back a little. But if we've kind of stayed where we are and we've just kind of gave it to the stockholders, there's no wiggle room, you know?
2: What, there's an economist, too, that you talked to. I think he's a professor um, over in Massachusetts, the University of Massachusetts. Talk to us about his f- philosophy, too, when it came to buybacks and kind of how it's maybe putting U.S. companies in a position where they're less competitive, competitive on something
7: like 5G, which right. everybody's talking right. about. I right. I mean, he was super interesting to talk to. And that's what he says. Not only is this slowing growth, but companies, which makes sense, right? If you're yeah. not investing in research and development and you're saying, well, we're seeing this kind of like immediate effect, we're helping uh, shareholders, the price is going up, but in the long run, companies like Huawei are doing better because they're getting ahead, like you said, in 5G. And he's very adamant about that, that we're hurting, uh, you know, we're going to mm. hurt on innovation. I mean, he's done a lot with helping different, you know, politicians to campaign on these issues to say, this is not only like short-term growth, this is our whole country in the future. And are we going to be thought leaders in technology and other things? So yeah. it's quite interesting. And yeah.
2: And really provoke, you know, provocative. I'm curious what you think the takeaway is from this. Cause I think about, we just got through an earnings season and when a company says, okay, we're going to do a buyback or boost a right. dividend, the share price usually goes up. So for investors who are listening to you, what should be their takeaway as they rewatch kind of this less investment in capital expenditures and spending more money on things like buybacks and so on?
7: Right. I think maybe they should, I mean, Some of us are investing for the long term, so we're not thinking short term, but they should think big picture and say, I don't want to say company names, but if XYZ company is just taking on a lot of debt, we can all be smart enough to know that analysis and say – in a downturn, they might default or they might have trouble. So we might want to not plow all our retirement, all our money into them. So big picture, it still kind of bodes for slower growth. I mean, we know the Fed just cut rates. They right. might do more. There's a million other things going on, like trade <laughs> issues, but uh, we won't get into that. Um, but I think you and I can kind of look at that and say, like I said, this company, maybe we want to be careful. And even yeah. young people are getting smart saying, oh, I'm reading about this company has all this debt. and right. uh, So it's a good thing to know. That's Liz McCormick. A couple of stories this week in the features section
2: about keeping your digital world private. Here to talk about them, technology editor Jeff Muskus. And Jeff, there really is, as you guys play out in the magazine, a tech backlash going on. We've seen those big tech CEOs hauled up on Capitol Hill again. Tell us about the coverage and how you approached
8: it. That's right. So if you've been paying attention the last couple of months, you've probably gotten sick already <laughs> of the kind of buzzword <laughs> contraction, tech lash, but it's used to describe the sort of general um, surge of the past couple, or a couple of three years, against uh, what's perceived, depending on your political affiliation or your, your particular interest in the sector, uh, as um, you know, too much power. These companies have the biggest tech companies have to either decide, uh, you know, what information we're all seeing or uh, how much market power they have. There's a growing push. Uh, among a a wider range of groups that have been active uh, until recently to uh, challenge these companies on antitrust grounds.
2: Right, it's something where you also see kind of Congress coming together, both Democrats and Republicans uh, voicing their concerns. And one of the stories I think that's really fascinating is is really a first-person story by Max Chafkin, right? Talking Mm -hmm. about setting up his own private uh, email server a la what Hillary Clinton tried to do and got a lot of heat for doing. It's not so easy to do.
8: That's right. When when Max uh, came to me over the winter with this pitch for uh, setting up his own private email server. Unfortunately, I was uh, one of the people who, as he describes in the story, just kind of stared blankly. But I was also <laughs> into it enough to How say... How are you going to do that? Well, right, exactly. You know, I'm a privacy hawk myself and so had thought um, for more than once about trying to to uh, get off of Gmail's grid. But, you know, unless you're incredibly technically inclined, which I'm embarrassed to say I'm not, uh, it's, it's pretty difficult. Um, but... Uh, Folks like uh, Helm, the startup that uh, Max talked to for the story, right. uh, you know, now sell you a package for a five hundred dollars server that um, you know after you're free, they'll run for you for a hundred bucks a year too. Um, and, and made it uh, kind of alarmingly easy to uh, to get off the, the email grid per se and make it so that um, only uh, MaxChaffigan.com and, and its proprietary server are really uh, controlling or have access to his emails.
2: But it's not so easy, right? Because he had some trouble with, I think, was it emails either getting out or coming in? I mean, it's not a perfect world when you try to get off the Gmail grid.
8: That's true. The, the big downside he found, and, and it is a big downside, is that often the messages you know, weren't delivered. They they would uh, be marked. Marked by Gmail, particularly as spam, and sent to the addressee's spam folders. And so it it takes a fair amount of work to sort of warm up your inbox so that uh, other more established email clients will trust it. Um, And and Max was forced to admit that, yeah, for, for the most important emails, he was still using Gmail, by and large.
2: And one other side that he found out, right? He realized he was kind of censoring when he was using Google and Gmail, that he was kind of censoring either his searches or what he wrote in emails because he was a, he had an awareness yeah, that all that information went back to Google.
8: Absolutely, yeah. His, his big revelation in the course of um, of reporting the story and, and trying this out was recognizing the the many ways, big and small, in which uh, he was sort of um, uh, controlling his behavior based, as you say, on just the knowledge that it was being read by somebody or I, could be.
2: I have to say, all of these stories are must reads. And let's get to the co- cover story: Joel Stein um, really trying to protect his. Pri- Privacy. Yes, <laughs> and he went in search of gadgets, but he had to also become private before he could go search for those privacy gadgets.
8: That's right. Yeah, Joel really uh, took this concept Fun. to to eleven. And we asked him sort of, "What um, c- can you build us a list of all the sort of um, gadgets available to try and take back your privacy from Silicon Valley?" And and he he did all at once. Yeah, but it wasn't. <laughs> but
2: again, it wasn't easy, right?
8: That's that's true. What he found um, after uh, painstakingly going into the trouble of making sure that um, Silicon Valley Um, Big Silicon Valley companies couldn't even track sort of the purchases he was making. Um, He assembled a a collection of tools to protect his identity, including uh, one of the more terrifying uncanny valley masks you've ever seen in your life, um, and kind of put it all on at once and and went to the store and and was successful up until... Uh, you know, a split second when he realized that um, you know, he, he, there was a hole in his defenses, and and yes, he had indeed been tracked the whole way.
2: I have to say, from reading this story, too, I didn't realize, and I, I kind of almost started to make a list of all of the services that are out there, that if you really do want to kind of scrub your digital life away, I mean, they're out there.
8: Yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing that had been available on sort of the, the outer fringes of the technology industry for a long time, but has certainly uh, gained a lot of uh, uh, cash Shea in the the past few years.
2: I'm curious, too, when you guys were putting together this coverage, because I always imagine some of the conversations that you have in the newsroom, like, what were you all focusing on? Because as you said, we've all been over the last couple of years, you know, we've gotten used to the tech CEOs going up to Capitol Hill and, you know, taking questions, you know, about their privacy, you know, about privacy concerns and their collection of data. But I'm just curious about some of the conversations you guys had in the newsroom over there.
8: Yeah, Well, as you can sort of see from the balance of the package, the priority was to try and make it accessible to people and, and immediate in a way that, uh, you know, they felt like this was news they could use as opposed to, um, you know, to your point, the sort of endless, um, yammering back and forth on, on Capitol Hill. You know, we felt that it was important with the Felix story, particularly to, to give people a sense of the, um, greater context of how we got here and, uh, a certain sense of the immediacy of, of the problem as it stands now. It's the, it's the newsiest of the three pieces. But um, by and large, yeah, we, we wanted to, to talk people through um, approaches that are available for them to take if they're they're looking to, to fight big tech.
2: Yeah, and all I have to do is check out the cover, which you can do on the newsstand or check online because it's a little scary. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, be warned. That's editor Jeff Muskus. So this week, Pursuits is all about those who like to go fishing for fun. Might I even go so far as to say angling for some fishing fun? Ouch. I yes, know. Oh, that's okay. really bad. We went there. All right, we went there. Let's bring in uh, editor of Pursuits, Chris Rauser. Um, Fishing. Yeah. For fun. Yes, of that's
1: course. That's what you guys
2: wrote about, the whole section.
1: Yeah, you know, we have, our audience is actually like a very fishing-heavy audience. And we have done fishing coverage here and there, but we've never done a whole section takeover. Um, and so we consulted some of the expert fishing uh team members here like Eric Schatzker and Kyle Stock. I did not know he was a big fish. Oh yeah, Jed Sandberg. A lot Ah. of uh, fishing diehards here at Bloomberg uh, steered us through this section, which was really fun.
2: Well, and what's really fun is you guys laid down a bunch of places to go, right? And this this isn't just I mean, these are some pretty posh places.
1: Yeah, so what we did was we talked to a bunch of different guides like all around the world, people who uh, are based in certain places, people who travel around and got their recommendations for where they like to go, where they like to stay, and who they like to fish with. So we got recommendations from Patagonia, the Amazon, Martha's Vineyard, where to stay, which is getting, you know, there's there's some luxury places in these places now, which is where we come in to cover right. it. Uh, and then also who to go fishing with, the guides.
2: But I love that. The guides, that's a big part of it, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, you want the person who's going to take you to the spots, to the inlets, to the eddies, um, and who really is going to know how to make sure that you have a good time the whole time. Alright, so where should we go? Well... I think you hit, Did you
2: do 10 places?
1: <laughs> yeah, so so we, you know, um, we recommended. My, so my place that I would go is Martha's Vineyard, uh, especially because there's this woman Abby Schuster who is a guide. She's 29 years old, uh, and she's one of uh, the only women guides that we talk to. And she's part of a whole new trend of kind of Instagram savvy guides. You know, if if you're not getting many bites. She'll do an impromptu yoga class. Uh, it sounded really cool. And then there's a bunch of uh, actually kind of live-aboard boats that we that we learned about. So in the Everglades, in the Florida Bay, just off the Everglades, you can go on a boat where basically you're driving around fishing the whole time. Or right. the same thing in the Amazon. Uh, very cool kind of experiences.
2: Well, and that's what's interesting in terms of experiences. I mean, Martha's Vineyard is going to be very different from the Amazon, right? And yeah. And also the type of fish you're going after, mm-hmm. correct?
1: Yeah. So I also learned about – I grew up fishing, <laughs> uh, but in New England – You did a lot
2: of fish conversations,
1: did you not? <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) And I uh, did not know about some of these fish, actually. I didn't know what a trevely is, which is kind of this huge silvery fish that you fish for in the Seychelles or the Permit, uh, which is in Belize. And they're these big, giant, really fun, really aggressive fish.
2: Um, I am curious too. Has it gotten much more crowded? Are there a lot more people? Like I think about some of the, the sports and activities and, and leisure pursuits that you guys cover in pursuits, whether it's golfing and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Are more people fishing more than ever before?
1: Yeah, so more people are fishing in certain in, in sort of traditional areas. And so the good thing about right now is that you know you, every part of the world is accessible now. Yeah. Um, and so if you want to go to the Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia, you can go and. Um, you know, that kind of place is accessible, but climate change is changing where some, some of the more traditional spots have been. So, you know, it can kind of narrow down where you can go and it can kind of build up people there.
2: All right. So there's 10 spots that you can go put, a, put them on your bucket list. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is you need equipment. So let's go yeah. there. Uh, some of it can be pretty expensive.
1: Yes. So we had this writer, John Garak write a piece about uh, bamboo fly rods, which is actually, you know, if you buy a new fly rod nowadays, it's usually a graphite. Um, and, but bamboo is sort of traditionally what fly rods were made from. And there's this kind of moment of like collecting vintage bamboo fly rides or buying new ones. There right. are people that still make them. Um, and they they kind of have this bit, the greater sense of personality. Um, and people like the tradition and handcraft that go into it, but they can cost several thousand dollars. And if you, actually, if you buy a new one, oftentimes people will. Buy a new one and then sell it immediately on the secondary market because they can be so valuable.
2: They're so valuable because what, and, and they're so expensive because they take a long
1: time to make. They take a long time to make. Yeah, yeah. and um, and each one has its own personality because they're not, you know, they're not made by machines. So right. they, they based on. So bamboo is actually a grass, right? And every blade is different, or every stalk is different, and you know the way that they're carved is different. So they really become your own.
2: I love too though some of the conversations in this story that you know somebody's like, "Why would I want this?" I can forget. For graphite you know get a graphite totally. rod for a yeah. few hundred dollars
1: which is perfectly you know perfectly <laughs> awesome and great uh it's just if you want you know a little bit of extra personality and and history with it
2: does it perform differently
1: yeah they feel different okay. um yeah and you know it they feel different as time goes by bamboo changes as time goes by right. it sort of evolves and becomes softer and you then also, imagine in
2: terms of your hands right it's got to feel pretty cool yeah for a yeah while. right um, talk about also, in terms of equipment, the bait. And I love this story. Tell us about Henry Hoffman.
1: Oh, gosh, yeah.
2: God, this is just such a cool story. Like, I want to sit down with this guy.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we wanted to feature uh, f- fly tying, and uh, which is, again, an old school tradition, which a lot of people do. It's a, there's a lot of hobbyists. Yeah. Uh, and then there's these kind of all-stars who make and sell flies. Uh, and so Henry Hoffman is one of the legends. He wins these awards. I didn't even know there were fl- fly tying awards, but there are. Uh, <laughs> Um, And so we got, we got, he sent us a bunch of flies and we featured the green Highlander uh, hair wing. Uh, which is a fly you use to catch salmon and steelhead. And he just went through and told us about every little uh, feather, every little piece of uh, squirrel hair, uh, the the twine that he uses. And he actually raises his own, or he raised his own chickens to create a special kind of hackle that was perfect for fly tying. He actually sold that company to a bigger company, but basically he bred chickens to make the perfect uh, sort of fuzz and, and feathers.
2: I mean, he used what I think it was something like 13 different materials to make mm-hmm. this. Um, yeah. And it's,
1: and so, about, it's like less than two inches long.
2: Yeah, but I do think about the time and effort. I mean, they're works of art.
1: They really are. And in fact, so this particular fly, uh, you fish with it, not when the salmon are hungry. That's actually not uh, something that they're, they're attracted to the color okay. and the reflective, the little reflective elements of it. So they just go, they just go at it. Um, and, you know, it actually is this kind of thing that you, you would actually buy as sort of a collector's item. You wouldn't necessarily really go fishing with it.
2: I was also curious from the folks that you talked to here at Bloomberg who are out there fishing whether it was Eric or some of the other guys yeah. um, I mean how important is it though the type of fly that you're using I mean this is really important or do they care is there like a status I mean symbol?
1: this is this is kind of a collector's item okay. the, um, they would probably tell you that half of it is more most of it is actually Placements, uh, It's timing. It's where it's your skill. Um, you know, the it's kind of hard to know patience. how they have patience. Exactly. And, and where you are. It's kind of hard to know how much the actual beauty of the fly plays into it. All right. Well,
2: they're pretty gorgeous. And speaking of gorgeous, you guys highlight a few um, properties, uh, fishing, real estate, places where you can go fishing, um, but you got to have some money here.
1: <laughs> yeah. So kind of the dream of a lot of anglers is to own your own slice of fishing. Fishing paradise, like your own yeah. watershed. And you can't really own a river, but you can own frontage on a river. And so there's a lot of um, big ranches out west, or not even out west and east too, uh, where you can have miles and miles of river frontage and you can go out fishing. And so we feature four properties. They're not cheap. I think the cheapest one is $10 million, right. um, which is called Ruby River One and Done. Um, and there's, uh, yeah, uh, one, we have one that was owned by Henry Kravis, know, $46 cool. million, uh, It's in Colorado. Right. Uh, Dean, one that was once owned by Dean Witter, which is $25 million uh, in California. And they're, you know, sometimes the houses aren't even really that fancy. It's just the property that people want.
2: Well, they're stunning properties. Very, very cool. Last, in terms of equipment, you also feature a way to get around while fishing. Let's talk yes. about um, the Hobie
1: kayak. Joel Joel Weber, editor-in-chief of Bloomberg Businessweek, uh, <laughs> uh, recommended this device, and then we tested it out. So the Hobie Mirage Drive 360 is a kayak that you can use to go fishing, and it has a very innovative uh, system of uh, pedals, basically. Right, so uh, hands-free, right? It's hands-free. Well, you, you you steer a little bit with your hands, but, okay. but you can pedal along uh, on a river or... Or turn uh, just using your feet while you're casting. So it's basically a great platform for fishing. And you can actually turn using the uh, propellers in this particular new technology. You can turn without moving forward, uh, which is very cool and unusual. And, and so, since so much of fishing is where you are and where you're right. placed and where you're aimed, this is actually really great. And also, you know, it's not – not a boat with uh, with a motor, you know. It's quiet it's nice and quiet, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: And for a mirror, I don't know. It starts at like forty six hundred dollars. Yeah, I it's think.
1: about forty six hundred dollars.
2: All right. Now let's get a little bit more serious because um, this really struck me. This is a book about a man who's out to protect salmon. Yes.
1: Yeah, so um, the book Stronghold is by a, a writer named Tucker Malarkey, which is a real name, <laughs> um, <laughs> really? and it's about this naturalist <laughs> named Guido Rahr, uh who's actually Tucker's cousin, and it, it's a story of the stronghold strategy of um, uh, of species preservation, so instead of waiting till a species is endangered, right. the idea is that you take uh, a piece of terrain or a territory and try to protect it before the before the species there becomes uh, you know too late to rescue. Right, and so. Um, so Guido basically uh, found this area in Russia, the Kamchatka Peninsula, which is just being open to mining and logging, uh, and decided, okay, this is where I'm going to protect uh, salmon. And he, you know, worked with the Russian government, worked with some, you know, even controversial mm-hmm. Russian oligarchs, worked with uh, Americans like Ted Turner, Tom Brokaw, and basically fought his way into protecting this area so that the salmon who are um, who are key to the whole uh, ecosystem the there. Keystone species. The keystone right? species. They, yeah. you know, they found isotopes that were only in sea life in the trees that were in this area because they're that central to right. the whole ecosystem. And so, Guido wanted to protect the salmon and, and then in turn, protect that whole environment.
2: That's editor Chris Rouser, And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, well, check out our daily podcast for the ride home at iTunes, SoundCloud, and of course, at Bloomberg.com. You can get this week's edition of the magazine. That's on newsstands now. And we'll be
0: back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.